Well, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You know that we're working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in the second half of chapter 11. And I've entitled it Paul's Apostolic Resume. Probably most of us are familiar with the term a professional resume. That would be presented if we're going into the job market or looking for a job, we hand them a resume or today it's probably emailing them our resume. There's another term that's often used interchangeably. It's called curriculum vitae. Many of you, probably most of you are familiar with that, but there is a difference between a professional resume and a curriculum vitae. A resume deals with professional competence and is used primarily in the workforce. A curriculum vitae is credential-based. One is competency-based. Curriculum vitae is credential-based. It is used more in the academic and the research world. A curriculum vitae will highlight educational training, work experience, personal skills, and lifetime achievement. So there is a little bit of difference, but we would say that this is Paul's apostolic resume. There's no passage of Scripture where Paul gets more personal about his own trials and struggles than this passage right here. You've heard me say, that's why I like 2 Corinthians, because Paul pulls back the curtain and tells us what he struggled with in life, and this is part of his external struggles. So in a general sense, he's presenting to the church at Corinth his apostolic resume. It's not an academic achievement because Paul had those. I mean, Paul was a rabbi of rabbis. He was going to replace Gamaliel. He had reached the zenith in the education of the Judean world. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. But he's presenting his apostolic resume, and in doing so, and exposing us to his trials, he really shows us his heart for souls. By telling us what he's been through, he's really telling us that he has a heart for souls. If you're familiar with where we are here, if you've been here, chapter 11, Paul digresses in chapter 11 for a little bit about his own financial support. He explains his policy, maybe we would say, on financial support. Why he doesn't receive from a church when he arrives in town, plants a church, offering from them. Because he wants to preach the gospel without charge, he said. So he explains that to them in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 11. And then he returns to the topic that he started with. And he calls it foolish boasting. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. He says, oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says, I say again, let no man think me a fool. And otherwise, at least receive me as a fool that I may boast a little. Verse 17, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. So Paul started off that way in chapter 11. Then he digresses into his financial policy, which was very different than the false apostles. They glean money from the church. Paul says, I won't accept money from the church because I want to preach the gospel without charge. And 
then he goes back to this idea of foolish boasting, which is maybe a little uncomfortable for us. But remember, the Corinthians were comparing Paul to these pseudo-apostles, these false apostles, these Judaizers, these legalists who came in after Paul had planted churches, and really they raped the churches. They took money from them and sowed false doctrine there. So Paul is dealing with that problem. And the Corinthians were comparing the pseudo-apostles to the apostle Paul. The pseudo-apostles were orators. Paul says, I am not an orator, but of knowledge I am very competent. They're comparing Paul to these pseudo-apostles. So he decided to do what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 5, answer a fool according to their folly. That's what Paul is doing here. He's answering these foolish Corinthians, not the whole church, but those who are dismissing him out of hand as they compared him with these pseudo-apostles. He's answering fools according to their folly. By establishing himself and his ministry, he knew he was defending the true gospel. Because that was what was at stake. Not Paul's reputation, but the true gospel. Because they were sowing a false gospel, Paul had to defend himself as being a true apostle with the true gospel message that was at stake here. I've taken chapter 11, this last half, verses 16 through 33, and put it under two headings that I see in this text, kind of corralling it under these two ideas. Number one, Paul employs foolish boasting. He tells us that. And then 23 through 33, Paul recounts intense suffering. Well, let's look at those two ideas. As I said earlier, he began this section by apologizing. He really is. He said, I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to go there. I don't do this with other churches. But because you are comparing me to these, to these false apostles and their credentials, I'm going to do it. So he apologizes for his boasting. And he repeated the sentiment, not just in chapter 11, verse 1, but in verses 16 and 17. And he says, the false apostles boasted incessantly. He says, what does he say here? I will boast just a little. In other words, I'm going to tell you a few things, but I'm not going to tell you everything I've been through. I'll boast just a little. And by the way, look at verse 17. He says, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord. Now that kind of makes us take pause for a moment. Wait a minute, is this non-scripture? Is this uninspired? Did Paul step out of the will of God and what he's doing here? That's not what he's saying. It says in verse 17, what I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting. He's not saying what he's saying or what he's writing here specifically in verse 17. He's not saying what I'm writing is not inspired, but that he was not doing anything that the Lord had ever done because the Lord never boasted. Jesus Christ never had to boast. His miracles gave veracity to every statement. He said he was God, and when he said he was God, he wasn't boasting. It threw the Hebrews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees upside down when he said that kind of thing, and they wanted to kill him, and eventually they did. But he wasn't boasting. Jesus never boasted. Paul is saying right here, I'm doing something I've not done in the past, and the Lord Jesus never did, but 
to get the point across, I'm going to do it. That's what he's saying here in verse 17. Look at verses 19 through 22. In verses 19 through 22, there's no question, every author, every commentator will tell you that Paul, what he wrote here, is using the most scathing sarcasm he ever penned in all of his letters, really to shock the Corinthians. So it's different than what most scripture is like. He's using the most scathing sarcasm that he ever penned to shock the Corinthians out of their complacent acceptance of these false teachers. So Paul is using sarcasm here. He did use it in some other places, but nothing like this. Lest you not quite understand, sarcasm is saying the opposite of what is true for impact or for effect. That's what sarcasm is, saying the opposite of what is true for impact. Paul is using sarcasm, scathing sarcasm. He verbally slapped the Corinthians. That's what he's doing here, verbally slapping the Corinthians to bring them to their senses, comparing him to these false teachers, these Judaizers, these legalists, or as he calls them, he coined the term pseudo-apostles. They called themselves super-apostles. In the previous verses, Paul says they're pseudo-apostles. So let's look at what he says here. He says in verse 17, we'll pick up there, What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly, in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are so wise. You could just hear his sarcasm, it's dripping in this passage. For you put up with it, If one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that. Okay? Let's kind of look at this a little bit. He says, they being so wise, they gladly tolerated foolishness. They put up with foolishness because they could see right through it. They did see right through it, is what he's saying. They accepted this foolish teaching of the pseudo-apostles. The next phrase, they didn't mind being put into bondage. Nobody likes to be put into bondage. Nobody wants their hands in stocks or their feet in stocks. Nobody wants to be handcuffed. He says that's what the pseudo-apostles, the Judaizers, were doing to you. They were taking the grace of God, the free grace of God, and they were overthrowing that, and they were putting you back under the law. They were putting you back under bondage. He says you put up with that. They didn't mind being put into bondage. What's the next phrase? They submitted themselves to this legalistic bondage contrary to the gospel of grace. And he says these false teachers, he uses the word devoured them. Interesting Greek turn of a phrase. It's the idea of you allowed these religious hucksters, these religious con men to deceive you and to take from you. That's what he's saying, and that's exactly what they did. They were getting wealthy off the converts that Paul had brought to Christ because they were preaching another gospel. They said, well, Paul didn't tell you that, yeah, just getting saved, that's not it. You've got to go back under the law if you're really going to please God. And then they were taking from them. He called them religious hucksters, taking advantage of them financially, and Paul never took a dime from them or a denarii from them. You want to put it back into the context. 
What's the next phrase? It's not quite what it appears in our English Bible. It takes from you. He says here, they take from you. One takes from you there in verse 20. It is the idea of catching in a snare. Not taking away from you, but catching you in a snare. The false teachers baited a hook with their false message. And the Corinthians, at least some of them, were swallowing it hook, line, and sinker. He says, they've deceived you and you've swallowed it. You put up with this false teaching, is what he's saying. They've taken from you. Let's go on. These men, he says, they were obsessed with their own importance. If one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. And he goes on to describe what? These men were obsessed with their own importance, these false teachers. They were, what does he say? Exalted in their own minds. We would probably say it today. They wrote their own press reports and then they believed their own press reports. They bragged about how great they were and they actually believed it. Is what Paul is saying. They strike you on the face. Paul put it pretty bluntly. They verbally strike you on the face, which would be the most extreme insult and humiliation. We get it. I mean, we've all seen shows where, you know, in the proper society, maybe British society, they take their gloves out and slap someone on the face. That meant, I'm going to duel with you. I'm going to fight you. But today, if somebody slaps you on the face, that's a tremendous humiliation, especially if it's done in public, and it's an insult. But in the Middle Eastern world, it's like coming up to someone today and punching them in the face or spitting in their face. It was the extreme of humiliation. He says, you put up with these people, these false teachers who slap you in the face, who insult you, and yet you continue to support them and give to them. The peak of Paul's sarcasm, I think, is found in verse 21. Look at that verse. He says, if this kind of behavior is the standard for teachers, that's what he's saying. If this kind of behavior is the standard for a false teacher, to our shame, to our embarrassment, we were too weak for that. I can't go there. I would never do that to you. All the humiliation that they've done from you by deceiving you, baiting the hook, slapping you in the face, insulting you, etc. I can't go there, is what Paul says. Paul employs foolish boasting. Really, it's like grabbing the lapels of the Corinthian believers and shaking them and saying, look what's going on. I brought you to Christ. I planted the church. I taught you the gospel. And now you're forsaking it for these false teachers who are only milking you, using you, deceiving you, insulting you. So Paul then transitions. And he talks about what he's suffered. And he doesn't do this anywhere else. He mentions it a place or two, but not to this extent. Anywhere else in all of his writing, Paul recounts his intense suffering in verses 23 through 33. He says, 
Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool because Paul knew they weren't. They were false teachers. I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes. That means whipped, being whipped in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths more often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep in journeys, often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils in brethren, in weariness and in Oil and sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst and fasting and in cold and nakedness. That'll wear you out just reading it, thinking what the guy endured. But he's putting it out there. This is my resume. This is what I've done for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom of God. In verse 22 Circle back there, the apostle states clearly, he is a Hebrew, he is an Israelite, he is a child of Abraham, he's a servant of Christ. Now, Paul's not being redundant, and I don't have the time. MacArthur really develops this over a number of pages in his commentary. Paul is dealing with every aspect because they were saying, Paul, he isn't really a Hebrew, he isn't a Jewish Jew, he's a Hellenistic Jew because Paul was from Tarsus. So Paul is answering every one of these accusations that were made about him. He's saying socially, religiously, culturally, linguistically, because they said his first language is Greek. It's not Hebrew and Aramaic. No, that's not true. Paul spoke Hebrew and Aramaic first. He lived outside of Jerusalem in his early life, but then he moved there. His parents sent him there. He's answering every one of their objections. He says socially, religiously, culturally, linguistically, covenantially, he says, under the auspices of Christ's covenant. He is in no way inferior to any of the other apostles, especially the false apostles. That's what he's saying here. So first he summarizes his sufferings. And then in the following verses, he gives us a few more details, a few more specific examples, many of which are not found anywhere in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is kind of chronicling Peter in the first part and then Paul in the majority of the book. And so we follow Paul on his travels, planting churches throughout Asia Minor and throughout the Mediterranean world. But most of these things that Paul mentions are not mentioned in the book of Acts. Evidently, he told Luke, who's the writer of Acts, don't record all of our trials and hardship. He did mention some of them, but not in any kind of a detail, and most of them are not found in the book of Acts. And frankly, this is probably only a sampling. This is probably only a sampling of what Paul endured, but he puts it out there to make the point, what I've done and what I've suffered has been for the cause of Christ. That's what he's saying. He says, five different times I've received 40 lashes minus one, lest we misunderstand that. According to Jewish law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, it says, in punishing a criminal, the maximum number of lashes from a whip would be 40, lest they die, okay? They lose too much blood, etc. 
the Jewish tradition was, even though the law said 40 lashes is the mat, the Jewish tradition was 39 lashes in case they miscounted. They didn't want to go over 40, so they would count to 39 and quit at that. So Paul says five different times I received 40 lashes minus one. That would be 235 times Paul's back was beaten with a whip or a cat of nine tails. 235 times. Can you imagine the scarring? Can you imagine the blood loss? Can you imagine the disfigurement? Because sometimes those lashes reaped around all the way to the front and sometimes on your face. It wasn't a pretty picture to look at Paul. And if he ever took his shirt off, people went, whoa, what happened to you? Can you imagine what Paul looked like? 235 lashes. And then he goes on, he says, I was beaten with rods. That was the non lethal practice of the Romans. They would, instead of using the lash, many times they would use the rod and they would beat a person across their back and their shoulders and their buttocks, breaking veins, causing great bruising, sometimes breaking bones, disfiguring them, but it was not supposed to kill them. Just a public example of them. He says, I've been beaten with rods, and either he doesn't remember or he doesn't care to tell us how many times he was beaten with rods. And he says, I was stoned. And he's talking about at Lystra. We know that one. That one's recorded in Acts chapter 14. They stoned him. That was the Jewish practice when they killed someone. They would stone him. They'd open the pit. They would put him down the pit, and they would throw not just little stones. They would throw big rocks at them crushing their skull, breaking their bones, killing them. And then they hauled them out of town. And that's exactly what they did at Lystra. They stoned Paul, assuming he was dead, and he probably was dead. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But they left him for dead, and then the Holy Spirit of God came upon him and raised him back up. And Paul dusted himself off and said, what's my next destination? What's the next mission? What's the next city I'm supposed to go to? That was Paul's life. Stoned at Lystra. Then he says three times he was shipwrecked. Spent a day and a night in the deep. And by the way, Paul is writing this. This is before Acts chapter 27. What happened in Acts chapter 27? He was shipwrecked again. He talks about three times of a shipwreck. We know he was shipwrecked at least four times and spent another day or two in the deep floating on flotsam, floating on parts of the boat, shipwrecked pieces of the boat in the dark days and nights, the Bible tells us. He spent a day and night drifting at sea, and we know it happened again in Acts 27. He says, look at verses 26 and 27. He was in constant danger from river crossings. He had the ford rivers. There were only bridges where the Roman Ignatian Way or or the Roman roads led over rivers. Sometimes he wanted to preach the gospel in cities where there was no bridge over the river. So he forded rivers. It was dangerous. He says, I was in dangers constantly from river crossing, from robbers. The ancient world was famous for robbers. 
from river crossings, from robbers, from the Jews. The Jews were always out to kill him because he was winning converts and they were leaving Judaism. He went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. He was in danger from the Jews and from the Gentiles because he preached against paganism and he preached against the false gods and the gods of silver and gold and wood, etc. all the pagan gods of the Roman and Greek world. So they hated him too. I was in dangers from rivers and robbers and Jews and Gentiles, whether it was in the city, because remember, there were a number of riots that chased Paul out of town, whether it be in the city or whether it be in the wilderness, he says. Then he goes on to say, and from false brethren. You know who he's talking about there? One example is the very group that says influence over the church at Corinth. The false brethren had come in there and were turning people away from the truth. I was endangered to the false brethren like those agitating the Corinthians. He goes on to talk about some of the other things. Without sleep, without food, without water, without clothing, without shelter, exposed to the elements. And even though this is the most detailed account of Paul's suffering that we find anywhere in the New Testament, it is by no means exhaustive. This is probably just a sampling Now, none of us really know how old Paul was when he died of martyrdom in Rome when he was beheaded after coming out of the Mamertine prison. We don't know how old he was. We assume he was in his 60s. That's probably our best guess, pushing 70. But when you read this passage and you read the book of Acts, you have to say it is a miracle. God providentially kept Paul alive through all the sufferings and all the dangers and all the struggles and all the trials he went through. He was providentially kept alive by God, no question. Up to the point of his martyrdom, supernaturally preserved. Paul reminds us in this book, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, early in this book, that the false apostles carried letters of recommendation. So they would come into town and they would have a letter of recommendation that they'd hold out to the church and say, see, all these people think we're really hot. We're really good. You ought to have us. We'll preach in your church if you give us an offering. Second Corinthians chapter 3 says, they came with letters of recommendation, but Paul bore in his body the brand marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, he says, let me take my jacket off. Let me show you the brand mark. Remember, in the ancient world, a slave was branded by his master, like we would brand cattle today. He says, I bear in my body. I have the marks, the brand mark of the Lord Jesus. They got letters. I got scars, is what Paul says. A lot easier to get a letter. A lot less comfortable to get a scar, but that's his point. His undeniable credentials were his sufferings. Because Jesus said that would characterize the apostles. And all 12 of the apostles met martyrdom, except probably the apostle John, who wrote his gospel and then his epistles and then the book of Revelation and was boiled in oil according to tradition, and then he lived through it. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. 
They all met martyrdom. Matter of fact, when Paul was called into the ministry, remember what the Lord Jesus said to him? I'm going to have you preach before kings and rulers, and I will show you how much, Acts chapter 9, how much you will suffer for my namesake. So Paul's ordination papers had on it, you're going to suffer a lot for the cause of the Lord Jesus. That would make most people shrink away. At the very offset, the very beginning, I'm going to have to suffer and be a martyr. But Paul understood that. And Paul kept on going. His undeniable credentials was his suffering. And Jesus told him that. And it would be true of all the apostles. The false teachers, on the other hand, often lived in ease and comfort, bilking the churches. Well, this characterized Paul's life. The key to this section, though, I think is found in verse 28. Let's read it. Verse 28 says, besides this... It's like, yeah, it's just kind of like a wave of the hand. Besides all of this, all these beatings, all these whippings, all these nights and days, all the suffering I've done, besides all this, kind of passes that out of hand. Besides all the other things, some Bibles translate it, besides all these external things, and I like that translation. Besides all these external things, all these sufferings, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for the churches. So if you paraphrase and put in our vernacular today, verse 28, Paul is saying, yes, I have been through many external trials, but the greatest trial of them all is not an external trial. The greatest trial of them all is the burden that I carry for the people of God, for the churches of God. The great weight that I carry is my concern for the churches. Yeah, I've suffered externally, but it's the internal weight is what he's saying. That's literally what he's saying. Yeah, I've suffered externally, but I'll tell you what really grinds me down is the internal burden that I carry, worrying, praying, witnessing to the churches. That's my real burden. Wow, when you put that in contrast or in close proximity to his external trials, that means he carried a heavy internal trial. There's no way to compare it to the external things, but he says, this is my great weight. This is my real burden. The word concern here, my concern for the churches, means press. Paul says, I'm pressed down. It's the idea of care, anxiety, stress, pressure. Paul says, I feel constantly the pressure of the churches that they would grow and that they would mature and God would protect them from false teachers and the worldly influences that are out there. That's my great prayer burden and concern on my heart all the time. I live with this pressure, he says. The other experience was external and occasional, but his concern for the church was internal and constant, he says. Paul climaxed this narration of his sufferings by relating his humiliating experience at Damascus. It seems like it's a little bit out of context almost, but he relates it. And he does so, he says here in the last part of the chapter, look back with me. He says in verse 30, if I must boast, so he returns to the idea about boasting. This is not what I normally do. 
but I'm boasting even about what I've suffered. If I boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. Do you get that? Paul says, if I'm going to brag about something, I'm going to talk about how much I've suffered for the cause of Christ. That's what I'm going to be bragging about. That's what I'm going to put on my resume. That's what I'm going to boast about, about my infirmities. Most of us don't go around and say, let me tell you about all my weaknesses. Let me tell you about my jail experiences. Let me tell you about how many times I've gotten in trouble with the law. We don't do that. But Paul could because it was all for the cause of Christ. He says, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. This may be beyond belief for some of you. He's saying, I'm telling you the truth, and I'm probably minimizing my experience. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison of soldiers desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in the basket in a window over the wall. A very embarrassing situation. So he just said, I'm going to brag about my infirmities. I'm going to boast about my infirmities. And here's another example that came to his mind. So he climaxed this narration of his sufferings by relating a humiliating experience at Damascus. Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus. We call it the Damascus Road. When he was struck down by a blinding light and he heard the Lord Jesus say to him, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he says, what? I didn't know I was persecuting you. He says, you're persecuting the church, which is me. And then Paul says, what would thou have us me to do? And he tells him, go into the city of Damascus. And Paul is either saved on the road to Damascus, I tend to think, but he was instructed and he was discipled there in Damascus for a short period of time. And then the Bible says that the Holy Spirit led him out into Arabia for three years. Remember, the disciples were with Christ for three years. And the Bible tells us that he was led out into Arabia, Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, and he was taught by Jesus Christ for three years. So Paul had the same experience as the other disciples, except he was mentored one-on-one by Jesus. And after that, after being taught, he already knew the Jewish scriptures. Paul probably knew most of the Old Testament by heart, by memory. But now he sees Jesus Christ in all the Old Testament. And that's what made him such a powerful preacher to the Jews. He could show them that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law. That Jesus Christ is better than the Arianic priesthood, Levitical priesthood. That Jesus Christ is the priesthood after Melchizedek. He could preach the scriptures from the Old Testament and convince the Jews as well as the Gentiles. So he goes back to Damascus and what happens? The Bible says he starts preaching boldly after three years of being with Jesus in Arabia. And they hated him so much. The Jews hated him so much. They were going to kill him. I mean, this is his first preaching assignment. He hardly got his feet wet and they're ready to kill him. So what does he say happens? The disciples in Damascus let him down through a hole in the wall, in the city wall, and Paul escapes. D.A. Carson said it this way. Here is this educated rabbi, the most educated rabbi, teacher in Israel. Here is this educated rabbi, this zealous Pharisee. He was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, the leading Pharisee. This educated rabbi, this zealous Pharisee who had access to the highest officials in Jerusalem. And he was snuck out of Damascus like a criminal. 
lowered over the wall like a catch of dead fish in a basket whose smelly cargo he had displaced. How true. How humiliating. But Paul had already told us, I glory in my infirmities. I'm not embarrassed by what I've suffered. I glory in my sufferings. That's not often true with us. The humiliating experiences, if we've ever gone through them for the cause of Christ, (laughs) we don't like to talk about them. Would the Judaizers ever tell a story like that? Like Damascus? Of course not. Could they relate any of those experiences that Paul had endured? Of course not. Because you don't suffer for things that you don't really believe in. You only suffer for things that you really believe in. Paul believed in the gospel. It had changed his life. It had changed his direction. Paul gloried in his weakness. What did he say in a different place? I glory in my weakness so that the power of Christ may be seen in me. Paul says, I don't want you coming to Christ because I'm an orator or because of my rhetoric or because of my logic, because of my compelling stories or anything else. I want you to come to Christ on the truth of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. Each trial left its mark on his life. And yet Paul kept serving the Lord. He kept moving forward. Matter of fact, what does he say? He says in Acts chapter 20, all the things he suffered, he said, none of these things move me. None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. He said, I'm not getting off the path. I'm not getting off the Jesus trail. I'm not getting off the commission that God has given to me. All the suffering I've done, none of these things are going to move me out of God's will. None of these things move me. And matter of fact, I don't even count my life that important. Because when I'm God, God will use somebody else. I do not count my life dear unto myself. How many of us can say that? How many of us can say that? And the reality is we got 75 to 100 people who haven't returned to church because they're afraid of Omicron, which is about like a cold. I'm not making fun. I'm not picking on anybody. But if people are that fearful of a cold, you'll never suffer for Jesus. That's for sure. I'm not saying be foolish or anything else. But in America, we're so soft. We're so easy. We read about what's going on in Myanmar, and they're slaughtering the Christians in the Chin Hills, burning them, bombing them, and we're afraid of getting a cold. And that's our excuse. Well, I'm staying home. I'm going to preserve my life. Paul says, I don't count my life dear unto myself. I'm counting the cause of Christ dear unto myself. What a rebuke for most of us. We're done. May we never take for granted the sacrifices that others have made, like the Apostle Paul, like the other apostles, like so many martyrs who've gone before us. May we never take for granted the sacrifices that others have made 
that we might enjoy the blessings of the gospel today. May we say, God, thank you for all those who've run the race before us, who've made the sacrifices that we now enjoy so we could hear the gospel. And may we be willing as well. Folks, we know we're in a transition stage here in America. You saw probably, if you're following the news this past week, they outlawed in Canada. They call it reconversion therapy, or they call it where you can't counsel people about a homosexual lifestyle or transvestite lifestyle. It's against the law, and you can't preach the passages that deal with that being sin, or you'll go to jail. Four pastors went to jail in Canada. 4,000 pastors wrote a letter of protest. I think it's the Canadian Bill 4. Guess what? That's happening in Canada. It's coming here. We all know that. We see it building. So every one of us here, if we live very long, are probably going to have to make up our mind. Am I going to live for Christ or am I going to run the chance of dying for the gospel? Am I willing to suffer for what I say I believe, what I say the Bible teaches? It starts with the little things. We all know that. The commitment to the little things before it becomes the big things. May God give us grace. Father, help us as we look to you for strength and grace. We're frail, we're weak, sometimes indecisive people. We don't like to suffer, but we're inspired and we're challenged and we're convicted and motivated by people like the Apostle Paul who gives us just a glimpse of what he endured for the gospel. May we be willing. May we not find excuses to keep our mouth shut, our testimony covered, and, and our convictions hidden. Or may we be bold. May we stand for the truth. May you protect us too, Lord. May we say, I count not my life dear unto myself. May that be true of us. Maybe you're here today, God's speaking to you about being bold, standing out, standing up, speaking out for your faith. I'm not saying being obnoxious, belligerent. I'm saying taking advantage of opportunities, looking for those opportunities, and bringing Christ into those opportunities. Maybe God's speaking to you from the life of the Apostle Paul and his apostolic resume. Maybe you're here today and you're not really sure that Christ is your Savior and heaven is your home. You could settle that today. You could know for sure that you're saved. You belong to him. Your sins are forgiven. Father, inch us closer and closer to what you want us to be as we meditate upon your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.